2: Hello and welcome to Changing Politics, a podcast that's half jokes about this week's news, half reporting terrible things and explaining what you can do to help. I'm Gronia Maguire, three parts righteous anger, one part awkward Theresa May Ava
3: and I'm Marie Laconde. Don't mess with me. I'm wearing a gilet jaune right now and I'm not afraid to use it. They've certainly made kids on school
2: trips walking along the street and the little high-vis vest-tops look a lot more threatening, <laughs> haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> this week, we'll be exploring the terrifying world of rent and seeing how we can make a difference. But first, let's get stuck into the relentless hell that is current affairs. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> so... We were supposed to be recording this podcast during the crucial vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal. It was going to be thrilling. Personally, I was hoping it was going to be like election night. And every now and then I get to rudely interrupt you, Marie, by shouting, sorry, we've got news from Westminster, like David Dimbleby, but with less of like a sexy granddad vibe. But instead, Theresa May decided to postpone it. Great news for us. Terrible news for the British economy, society and fans of BBC live text feeds. Honestly, at this point, we just have to assume whatever Theresa May says, the exact opposite will happen. If she says there's going to be a vote, there won't be. If she says she won't resign, she'll be gone by the end of the week. If she talks about friendship between France and the UK,
3: she'll send an invasion force to Calais the very next day. Hang on, hang on. War against Spain, not France. I would like to make it clear once again, I think it was General Bulls on Twitter today, he said, actually, I'm for a second referendum, but the only two options are the Norway option or war with Spain. And and to that I say, why not both? I think you're
2: going to start tweeting about weapons of mass destruction being found in Madrid or something. (laughs) So the reason that she's postponed the vote, of course, is that she knows she's definitely going to lose it. You can't just put this deal forward and then cancel it at the last minute when it's clear no one's going to turn up for it. It's serious parliamentary procedure. It's not a Facebook event for birthday drinks.
3: But I think the thing about that as well, and I can't remember, I feel like we might have talked about it last week, but I think that what I found weird is that fundamentally the idea of having a first vote basically on this and kind of knowing it's going to get voted down then go back to brothels, maybe getting you know, this some like very much like cosmetic concessions to so, like, you know, mm. effectively to the political statement, then, you know, why not? And then it gets voted on again. And by then, so it's probably January, MPs are starting to be like more sort of like scared of no deal, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then the deal passes, like not about plan, what is a bad idea is to fucking tell everyone about that plan before it happens, and literally, like, that leaked out from, like, I think every paper had a version of it being, like, you know, and the number 10 source says exactly what we're going to do is, and it's like, no, guys, like, most secret plans, that only works if it's secret. Mm-hmm. Um So I think that, yeah, like, it, I don't know. It, it just felt like the, the worst of both worlds to kind of do it in this way.
2: But listen, the whole, oh, don't worry, I'm going to go into the
3: U- EU and fight for Britain. Wasn't that David Cameron's plan about three years ago? And that worked out perfectly, <laughs> that famously. That worked out really well, I think you'll find. All
2: those, I am not even going to sleep. So that was her plan. She's going to go bring it to the House of Commons. It was going to fail. Then she'd be like, don't worry, guys. I'm going to go back and argue and then sort of wear
3: Parliament down until they just panicked. So that's effectively the thing. And I think well, the problem is that once that leaked out, obviously lots of MPs were like, but oh, hang on if the first vote doesn't count for anything, then I might as well. Because, you know, like, the deal does not please many, many people. Mm. So either, like, Romania or self-Brexit MPs were like, OK, we'll find if the deal, like, if that first vote doesn't matter. I can vote against it symbolically to be like, look, you know, but that is because, you know, I'm committed to, like, I don't know, fucking, like, Norway Plus or mm. no Brexit or a second referendum, etc. And then the hard Brexiteers could do exactly the same from their side. And then, obviously, that was going to turn into like, I don't know, a defeat of, like, maybe 200 in the Commons, mm. which is unsurvivable for a Prime Minister. And so, yeah, again, like, that's why you don't, like, you keep your secret plan secret, because otherwise I think what they were planning on originally was a defeat of about 20, which is not great, mm. but also survivable.
2: And these are the people negotiating UK's future. Excellent. I just don't know why Theresa May wasted all that time trying to convince p- people of a deal... That was basically what you're saying was always doomed. She got cabinet approval of the deal November 14th. The day afterwards, four cabinet ministers resigned, including her Brexit minister. Then she still wastes 25 days trying to sell people on this deal. To remind everyone, the UK leaves the EU in 107 days. She's wasted more than a fifth of the time that we have left on this stupid deal, and now she's abandoned it. It's the political equivalent of spending two and a half of the 12 hours you have on an essay deadline choosing the font.
3: I mean... I will hear nothing against that. <laughs> you know, I am a big fan of faffing about <laughs> and changing fonts. It is very important to have the right font for an essay. Maria's just smug
2: because she's reached her word count for her book. Deal. Not yet, not yet. But like a good. <laughs> So surely this means that Theresa May's days are numbered. Although, to be fair, we did say that after she lost the election last year and after the terrible party conference speech and after that time she ate that chip really weirdly. So let's assume May hasn't done some kind of deal with the devil where she gets to remain Prime Minister forever but in exchange has to give up every single word in her vocabulary except for I have been very clear who are the front-runners to take over from her in the Tory party. So at 8-1, we've got former Have I Got News For You presenter turned Steve Bannon Tribute
3: Act. It's Boris Johnson. Marie, what do you think his chances are? I don't know. I kind of feel like... Oh, like... I don't have anything firm to kind of like base that on, but my feeling is that I do not think he would make it. The way Tory leadership contests work, you know, obviously it's kind of like they have to choose effectively two candidates to put forward to the membership. I think that if Boris makes it to those two, he would win. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think that MPs know that, Conservative MPs know that. And they will stop, you know. But that's always been the thing for so long now. I think since like 2016 or even a bit earlier, there's always been this idea that if Boris were to run, there would be a stop Boris candidate, and mm-hmm. that would be that. And MPs would try to do that. Also, I think recently, like a group of MPs, I can't remember exactly like the full list, but it was I mean it was reasonably long. I think it was like Heidi Allen, Sarah Woolston, and a few others, effectively saying they would resign the Conservative whip if Boris were to become leader. Mm-hmm. So. The thing about Boris, that fundamentally, leadership contests are popularity contests. You know, within parliamentary parties, and so you need to have your mates, you need to have the people around you, you need to have people you trust and people who trust you, people who kind of like go out to bat for you. Boris never really had that. Day. I don't really see it happening, but we'll see. Ugh, I just find it revolting. I honestly.
2: I throw an egg at him, I hate, I just, he makes me so angry. He's so, he's like male, it's like a card, if you're to like a white male privilege, there should be just a little picture of his smirking little face. Just fucking hate, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. Also in at 8 to 1, it's Dominic Rab. So Rab is probably most famous for resigning from government in protest at a deal that he technically negotiated, and for being confused about the location of France. However, he's not just ignorant, he's also deeply unpleasant. Last year, he said that people who use food banks didn't do so out of poverty because they had an occasional cash flow problem, which is technically true in the same way that a drowning person has an occasional oxygen flow problem. When the BBC journalist Victoria Derbyshire reminded him of those comments this week,
3: he blocked her. The thing is, well, one of my favourite recent things about Dominic Raab is that, so Amber Rudd remarked, I think, last week, saying, she said, the men at Westminster seem to flounce out quite a lot, mm-hmm. which, you know, not an unreasonable yeah. point to make. And uh, so he was on the Sophie Rich show on Sunday, and his response to that was, Amber does this every now and again. She did it during the referendum when she personalised an attack on Boris. I'm not sure if that seemed at me. It sounded a bit sexist to me. So, Ugh. Like, and that's not me as well. Like, he is a proper, like, sexism Ugh. against men is a problem. Ugh. Yeah. Which I feel like is something that we tend to forget about. But no, he is genuinely, yeah, like, he's a proper, like, proper crank, like, feminism has gone too far, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So, you just a nice... know he
2: really fancies himself. <laughs> oh, he'd eat himself if he could. He really could. He strikes me as the sort of guy at a family wedding who'd go up going, Well, ladies, looking very
3: well. Oh, <laughs> like, I'm not saying he has a mirror on uh, the ceiling of his bedroom, but I feel like I'm saying that maybe he doesn't not have one.
4: <laughs> yeah, he has that
3: vibe. Ugh, he's I.
2: But he's so smug. He's so smug and pleased with themselves. He's an example of halfway good-looking guy thinks he's bloody. Oh, God. Just behind them, <laughs> ten to one, it's Michael Gove. Highlights for him include saying that he would be a terrible prime minister, and then running to be Prime Minister in July 2016. Also worth mentioning that Gove maintained the Brexit vote on Tuesday would be going ahead and just a few hours later, May postponed it. So there's an extremely good chance he's lucky, the god of mischief, inside the body of
3: Pob. I think, again, I think Gove as well is really unlikely to be running for leader anytime soon, because like, he knows, but he's, like, he is seen as a massive backstabber, which I think, you know, mm. is not entirely unreasonable. Again, in the fact that, obviously, he kind of, like, quite unexpectedly um, backed Lee, even though he was very close to David Cameron. There's obviously, you know, the kind of, like, Boris saga. And I think that like, it is a problem where, again, that, that kind of comes back, I think, to what I was saying earlier about <laughs> Boris, ironically. But... There needs to be that element of trust, I think, for MPs to nominate someone for leader to want them to be the leader of their party. And I think Michael Gove does not have that element of trust now. However, what he does have is actually quite a lot of people who I think fundamentally like him Mm. within the kind of like Parliamentary Conservative Party. And so, you know, like at the end of the day, like he is not like he's not that old. Um, he's actually, you know, doing a decent enough job I think at Defra. He's quite like there's not been any major scandals. So I don't see him doing it now. I don't see him I, I just don't see him running for leadership now.
2: Do I always get the sense with Gove that he sort of sold his soul to all those Eton Posh boys, the Camerons and the Osbornes and Johnson. And he was like their dancing little grammar school boy, you know, the little really super clever little. Oh, he came from a working class background. Look how clever he is. Oh, and he used that. And then he sort of was tainted by it. Also, at 10 to 1, it's Sajid Javid he called momentum neo-fascist linked Jeremy Corbyn with holocaust denial without any proof and tweeted about the problem of asian pedophiles in the uk he has also rejected requests for an independent investigation into islamophobia in the conservative party
3: well now he's the one who i think actually had has chances. like he's been sort of like named like, his name has been around for quite a long time now and let's look back a bit in like 2015, like 2016, pre-referendum. So I think, yeah, even 2015, in the conserv- Conservative Home polls of their readers on like who they'd want to see as a successor to David Cameron, he was for quite a long time, I think, third of that. So there was obviously like Osborne, Mayne. I think it was him. So he was kind of always floating about, and he was kind of like then, like, you know, one of the rising stars of the Conservative Party. But then, yeah, you know, he was being a natural Brexiteer. Like he's on the right of the party. He's very Thatcherite, etc. And, you know, but except that he, he, you know, he was George Osborne's bitch, effectively. Like, you know, he was kind of like an Osborneite and the idea was always that, you know, Osborne would be the successor to Cameron and then Sajid would be the Chancellor. So he decided to, like, pinch his nose and back remain in order to save his career. Obviously, <clears throat> that didn't work <laughs> out exactly. I mean, you know, I feel like you might remember what happened in uh, in June 2016. <laughs> When um, the crows start eating crows. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, you know, he tried to run for leadership, but sort of as a weird like um, drawing ticket with Stephen Crabb. Um, oh, Stephen yeah,
2: no, Crab. So to know where he is. <laughs>
3: <laughs> He's in a pub somewhere. And yeah, no, exactly. And you know, famously, then like, he went down in flames because of like the sexting scandals, and also is just quite homophobic. I think has been linked to like several charities who, like, if I remember correctly, busy are very dodgy on LGBT issues. So fun, fun, fun. But anyway, so I think that his star is kind of like has now been rising again. So it kind of got interrupted a bit and is rising again because again, I think he has that thing of would have been a Brexiteer, then was a Remainer, and since then, you know, has been on the camp of, like, you know, Brexit needs to happen. So I think that quite a lot of people feel that because he's not, like, dead set on one ideology, they can be like, oh, well, actually, you know, like, maybe he'd, like, fight for our corner, especially, or, like, whatever.
2: Oh, I think that's quite inspiring. People going, yeah, I mean, he's obviously a hardcore... In his heart, right-wing Brexiteer. But luckily, his ambition means that he basically stands for nothing. Cool, apart from a hatred of the poor. Brilliant. And gay people, super. Uh, no. Oh, is he, is that, was that? That Stephen? was crap oh, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. He'll just support somebody who hates gay people, super. Also in, at 12 to 1, it's fan of the podcast... Jeremy Hunt, current Foreign Secretary. So as Health Secretary, he was responsible for removing bursaries for undergraduate and postgraduate nurses and morale across the NHS nosedived as A&E targets were continually missed. Waiting lists grew each year and every year, winter crisis appeared worse than the last. Probably most annoyingly, he frequently posts pictures of pigs that he finds on Twitter, which is annoyingly
3: charming. I yeah, I feel like Jeremy. Hood, I don't know. I think that again, the name has kind of like um, been like been kind of like doing the rounds for quite a long time. And obviously, like he is one of the great survivors. I think he might be the cabinet minister who has been in cabinet for the longest in this kind of like Tory administration, that like, counting Cameron and May. So yeah, he is he is a kind of you know like great survivor. But that being said, I think that you know for, for reasons you, you've just outlined, like he's not terrifically so like popular with the public so I'm not entirely sure that's what you know I guess Mm -hmm. like you know like the Tories would want because the Tories do kind of like winning sometimes when they're not Mm -hmm. busy so like fighting each other to the death so I'm not really sure I feel like I've not heard much from him for a while now I could see him just kind of like somehow still being in a senior cabinet position with whoever like the new leader is but I don't know. I don't. I mean, he might go for it, but I don't. I do not really see it. What does it say about his personality that
2: he's the one who's managed to keep his head down and survive that long? Is he very clever or
3: just very quiet? Ooh, uh I'm not entirely sure. But again, that was a weird thing. that like, I don't know a tremendous amount about him. He's not. He's not someone who you know, like, goes to the parties and is kind of like seen everywhere. Like, that's not really the sort of person he is. He doesn't get involved in infighting, and I think that's kind of something him and Matt Hancock tend to have in common. They're kind of, you know, nervous, you know, like, well, they're badly, but like they kind of just do their job on the side, and they're kind of like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna bother with the kind of like you know, trash fire in the corner. And actually, I think you tend to forget how rare that is of like, especially people who get to a certain level of politics, and who decide to be like, you know what, I'm just not gonna get involved.
2: I just think you know, like obviously, I'm left wing. I'm a Labour Party member, so obviously, I'm not going to particularly like any of the Tory leadership candidates. But bloody hell, that list Johnson, Rab, Gove, Hunt, Javid, it's just so. Fucking depressing. There's not even one of them you can respect. I mean, you look at people like Esther McVeigh and Priti Patel and Stephen Barclay and everything they say, and I don't know if I'd rather they were as stupid as they come across or if they were just pretending because it just seems like it's just a big fucking game to them. Like even Anna Subri, who seems like she'd be fun to get pissed with, she backs down. Every single time it comes to actually voting against her party. Like, I remember feeling... Not quite, but, like, a feeling that felt like relief that May got in, despite her track record in the Home Office, because at least it meant we were spared Johnson or Leadsom. Is that where we are as a country now, just hoping for not the worst possible outcome and
3: treating that as a win? I mean, I sort of think, that, because actually when you look back at something like, Not all of them, but most, you know, most MPs who became leaders of their parties, especially in Labour and the Tories, like, the person who won was never the person who was touted as the most obvious leader. You kind of have, I think, to have a degree of being the underdog in order to win. Obviously, that that works for Jeremy Corbyn. Theresa May was a slightly different one because obviously all she had to do was, like, standing still for, like, 17 seconds (laughs) while everyone around her just collapsed. So I reckon, yeah, like, there are still some names. So, you know, I think that... Amber Rudd has been talked about a bit, you know, she could be a sort of, like, remain kind of, like, you know, candidate. Esther McVeigh has said, which I thought was really funny, um, you know, well, if I must, I'd think about it, something like those lines, and it's like, OK, well, all of us, I guess, you know. Um, but then, I don't know, so Liz Truss is an interesting one because I think that she's been doing the right set, she's been everywhere, like, over the past, but it's been maybe a year or something, like, she just is every, every fucking, like, Westminster event... There will somehow be less trust. Like she's always there, even when she's not giving a speech. She's just there. She's the one who helped launch Freer, the thing, the free market think tank earlier this year, last year. I can't remember.
2: Oh, lovely free market politician! Wow, <laughs>
3: that's but what I th- we need more of. But I think that I think that wing of the party, which is actually a large wing of the Conservative Party, do like her? And I've talked to MPs before who are like, you know, like who do you like? Or like who would you see? I remember I like a lot of people don't like Philip Hammond, and they're like, you know, so what, what who would you like to see as Chancellor? And I've heard a few times of, like, Liz Truss saying she could be a surprise candidate. And then, I don't know, I mean, I <laughs> I doubt that Gavin Williamson will make it, you know, the, the great Francis circuit of our times. Oh, um, But, yeah, but I don't know, there might still be, you know, like 2010 intake, there are lots of people there who've kind of, you know, maybe haven't made it to Cabinet yet, but have ambitions. So, yeah, we'll we'll sort of see. But, I, yeah, I, I think I'd be ready to bet that there would be definitely some, like, unexpected names in there.
2: Of course, we should say, do you know who's four to one to be the next Prime Minister? That's right, friend of the podcast, it's Jeremy Corbyn.
4: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
2: So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about DSS discrimination, where landlords refuse to rent properties to people on benefits. It's illegal and also commonplace. This week, another perhaps grimmer problem, sex for rent, where landlords offer free accommodation in return for sex. Isn't this illegal? It is, but again, it's incredibly common. On websites like Craigslist, you'll see it very openly advertised, and despite it being out in the open, there has not been one single prosecution for this. We caught up with the MP for Hove, Peter Kyle, who's been campaigning on this issue.
5: The problem is much more widespread than people realise. You know, These adverts, advertising free accommodation in return for sex, have been placed for a number of years now. The most detailed survey of this has been done by Shelter, that's saying that a quarter of a million women at some point have been propositioned by landlords for free accommodation in in return for sex. Uh, The offer's been made. We know that there are many hundreds of adverts that are live right now. Uh, And Shelter also estimates that this is a particularly British problem. And there are more adverts in Britain on Craigslist, for example, than there are in America and the rest of the EU combined. So we know this is a particularly British problem. We know that it's been growing. It's not diminishing. And it's impacting people that people wouldn't assume are being lured into a prostitution-type arrangement. You know, kids going to university, being packed off by their parents, who are all really completely over the moon. They're arriving in a city or a town that has a housing crisis. Uh, The universities can't put everyone up in halls, so they're scurrying around town looking for places to stay, and suddenly they see this advert, or they are propositioned by a landlord. And amidst all of the newness of their life, the, the exhilaration of the... Uh, the new opportunities and freedoms they're enjoying as as young adults, sometimes this gets kind of like swept up into that, and people, young people, and mostly women, but sometimes in places like Brighton as well, men are being sort of lured into this relationship, and they're not quite realizing what it is, what legally it is, what morally it is, and we have to make sure that the people who are going into these sorts of relationships need to understand precisely what it is. I mean, look, what I've heard from people who. have entered into these relationships. One person was in a house that had two people who were both staying in a sex-for-rent accommodation. They said that they were be sitting in the lounge watching TV, and when the landlord was in there watching TV with them, they never knew when he was going to turn around to say to one of them, should we go upstairs? So the kind of you know, blurred lines that come with because, it, because the payment is accommodation does not hide the fact that this is coercive. But how do we give rights and those same sort of responsibilities when the people who are entering the relationship don't understand precisely what they are entering in the first place? And then by the time they do understand it, it's too late because they're stuck in a house where the landlord can turn to them at any point and say, let's just pop upstairs. And there's nowhere else for them to stay. It'll take weeks to find somewhere else, and they might not have the money to find uh, anywhere else. So for many of these young women in particular, but also young men who are in these relationships, it is a choice between going upstairs and having sex or sleeping on the streets.
3: So I feel like we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, kind of like flat horror stories, like renting horror stories, but when you add sexual menace into the equation, it's even more horrific. And I think it's the thing as well where I'm not... You know, I like am I personally, you know, um, I'm not anti-sex work. I think that sex work should be decriminalised. And I think, yeah, it is that weird thing where I'm not, as a result, fundamentally against the kind of, like, general idea of someone, you know, if it is, like, a kind of contract where, let's say, someone is, like, you know, offering sex in exchange for rent. But clearly, I think with those situations, like, it's just... It's mm. like the
2: abuse of power. It's like, uh, what is the context of people making these decisions? Like, if we had a non-insane housing market where people could rent with dignity a reasonable property in London, and but then chose to pay in other ways than good for them. But it's this real sense that it's coming from a place of real disadvantage and very vulnerable people being taken advantage of rather than empowered people making a choice.
3: I completely agree. And I don't think actually that is an arrangement per se that can ever ever be truly consensual because mm-hmm. it is something, you know, someone like you're living in their house and actually, you know, they can just make you homeless at any point. So it's not something as straightforward as saying, you know, I will perform a sex act in exchange for a certain amount of of many. like I think that, I, I mean, there are so many ways, I think even the most like consensual ways that, you know, that could turn so very, very wrong. And again, you know, as you mm-hmm. said, I think that I don't see why people would do that if they felt like they had literally no other possible solution. Mm-hmm.
2: So we're joined now by John Elledge of the City Metric website and the new Statesman, who's something of a nerd when it comes to housing policy. John. Hello. In technical <laughs> terms, how fucked up is the British rental
6: market? Okay, well, think of the most fucked up thing you can possibly imagine, and then square it. It's pretty bad i mean but it it sort of depends on on where you are, so the overriding thing to think about is what the balance of power is between landlords and tenants and in in regulatory term in regulatory terms um Tenants' rights are pretty weak and landlords' rights are pretty strong. That's probably just a coincidence in a, in a, in a country where uh, 40% of MPs are also buy-to-let landlords. I don't imagine there's any connection uh-huh. there. But, 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 you know, also in terms of – if you think in terms of supply and demand, you know, tenants will be in a much stronger position in a place where they have a choice mm-hmm. So in a, in a place, you know, in a world where lots of people want to live in the same cities because that's where all the jobs are, that's where all the opportunities are, and there aren't enough rental properties to go around, that places a lot of power in the house for landlords. Um, so tenants are, as you so neatly put it, fucked.
3: And so we've seen Sidi Khan raise the idea of rent controls for London in the last week. Is that something that would help the market and would it help stop sex for rent?
6: I, I hate to say it, but I think probably not. Because the, as I say, the, the the problem is is the number of uh, places to live, and in proportion to the number of people that are looking for those places to live. If you cap the price you can pay for any uh, any home, but there's still enough homes to go round, then landlords will find other ways of choosing which tenants they think are are the most attractive ones. So they might, for example, say, well, you know okay, you, you're saying you'll pay me the same amount, but you're on housing benefit, and I don't quite trust that that's going to be there in a couple of years, so, so you're out. Mm-hmm. Or they might think, oh, you know, she... I, I, I quite like her. Maybe, maybe I will prefer her over this other person. You know, if you take finance out of the equation, then landlords will just kind of like exert their power in other ways. That is what has tended to happen in, in cities such as San Francisco, which have long-standing rent controls. Is there is still quite tough selection processes, even if they're not happening through, through the sort of headline cost of an apartment.
2: So if that wouldn't help, what would...?
6: building more homes is the obvious one you know if you, if we have more homes relative to the number of people seeking them then that that by definition weakens the position of landlords and, and strengthens the position of tenants but that's obviously going to take a while. Even if we had a government that was up for it, which is not entirely clear we do. So, so the shorter-term measures would be to kind of change the regulations to strengthen tenants' rights. For example, by making, uh, you know, make, making tenancies longer, making it harder to evict tenants for any reason other than gross, gross negligence. You know, a lot of other countries have much stronger regimes of tenants' rights than, than Britain does. There are things that could be done. But another big one, without even changing the law, would be to kind of prosecute the law that is already there. The difficulty we've got at the moment is that that's generally a job for local authorities. And local authorities have got rather a lot on their plate and not enough money to do it with. If, if we could actually sort of rely on local councils to be enforcing the law as it stands, then that would do a lot to deal with these problems, particularly the as uh, sort of sex-for-rent ones.
2: Thanks, John. Cheers, guys. So what is the government doing about it? The good news is that the Home Secretary met Peter Kyle to discuss the issue. The bad news is that the Home Secretary was Amber Rudd, and she's left now. So here's where we're up to.
5: So I got the Justice Secretary, at the time it was... David Galk, then it became David Liddington. And David Liddington wrote to me, this was 18 months ago, and he clarified for the first time that sex for rent actually is illegal under the 2003 Sexual Offences Act. And the bit of the law that it actually it falls foul of is incitement to prostitution, which means that the incitement is the criminal act, which means that placing the advert is the Criminal Act, because previously we thought actually the exchange, you know, the sex had to take place in order for the criminal offence to occur. But actually it's placing of the ad, because that is incitement to prostitution. So this is the next bit. You see, I quite naively, as a fairly new MP at the time, thought that clarifying the law and getting a lot of publicity for this would actually just deliver the change and the protection that young people, in particular young people, need in these circumstances. Six months goes past, and I then contact the Department for Justice and say, how many prosecutions have there been? At Zero. How many arrests have there been? Zero. So I then start asking, well, why isn't the law being enforced? And nobody could answer this question. So I shifted my campaign from the Department of Justice across to the Home Office. Amber Rudd was Home Home Secretary at the time, and she very, very kindly sat with me for quite a long time, and we went through the issue, and she was as appalled as I was, When she was presented with the evidence and actually presented with some of these adverts and the graphic nature of them the explicit nature of them the exploitative nature of some of them she then went away and did a uh, sort of looked into this we met again and we were in contact several times about it Uh, she obviously then left uh, as home secretary and i found out afterwards she said she would set a work stream up in the home office with four or five civil servants to look into this but it hasn't reported yet and again there's been no arrest yet which is why i geared up the campaign again recently uh, called the Westminster Hall debate on it, laid down a whole, more, whole lot more uh, questions, having a real puppet uh, uh, on a few issues in the chamber and doing a lot of media over it, and also working very closely with Shelter and uh, Women's Aid and lots of other organisations who really need to, to start uh, amplifying us all together, the consequences of this, and let people know that actually this is happening.
3: And what can an ordinary person do? This is what Peter told us.
5: Well, where we've got to in this is I've had the law clarified, so we know this is an offence. So it's now shifted across towards enforcement. So I think that anybody who is listening to this who really cares about this issue and wants to make a difference, get in touch with your local uh, police and crime commissioner. Get in touch with your local chief constable. Ask how many people have been arrested for this, how many people have been cautioned by this, and how many people have been prosecuted for this. And if it's no one... You can very, very easily go onto Craigslist, particularly if you're living in a town and city, and you can find uh, these adverts and you can send it to them and you can say, I want this person locked up because they are in contravention of the 2003 Sexual Offences Act and they've committed the offence by posting the advert and you expect somebody to be locked up for it. I'm doing this with my own police force. I'm doing this with the Home Office and I'm also working with Cornerstone barristers and they have appointed some barristers pro bono, and we are working together to see whether we can bring a test case. So I'm doing everything I can do just to try and get this sorted in law. If the government aren't interested in enforcing the law on this, if the police forces up and down the countries aren't interested in this, if the police and crime commissioners aren't interested in this, then I will bring a private prosecution and hope that it will capture people's imagination that way. Because right now we have people who are being sexually exploited The law is clear, nobody is enforcing it, and we as a country aren't jumping up and down saying this just isn't what we want in our society.
3: As well as that, do look up the Housing Woman Cymru project. They're doing some excellent work on this. And that's it for this week. You can find information about all the campaigns we've talked about on our website, changingpolitics.org.
2: We'll be back for one more show before Christmas next week. So if you've got a campaign you'd like us to talk about, please do get in touch through Twitter, where we're at changingpolypod, and Facebook, where we're at changingpol. See you next week.
3: Bye.